All right, we'll go ahead and get started with a smaller class here. We're trailing off at the end of the semester, losing students week by week. And hopefully, we've still got some folks on the way, but uh, you might mark them down as tardy. Aaron, I do try to keep track of who's on time. Now, everybody listen up. So, when it comes to being a student, one of the things that's important to learn how to do is to follow verbal instructions. Now, I think this week I neglected to send out an email with the assignment. Is that true? Did I send out this assignment? I can't remember if I sent out the assignment. But anyway, I did give the assignment verbally in class last week. And so when you are in class and the teacher is giving you the assignment, you should be taking notes. You should be writing that down. Make sure that you know what the assignment is. Being able to follow verbal instructions is an important part of life. And it's a skill you want to be developing now so that when you get out into the workforce or you go down to college or anything like that, you're not showing up saying, oh, I can't remember. Did he say this or did he say that? Or you get home and you're like, what did the professor say in class? Did he tell us to do this? You're calling your friend, asking, and they're asking each other, and well, I don't know. But being able to jot down what you're supposed to do with a note while you're in class is an important skill to develop. And then that's going to train you to be able to follow verbal instructions when you get to your job. Uh, if you're starting over here at Homestead and your uh, boss is telling you, okay, this is what your job is, and this is what you're doing, and you want to be able to process as much of that as possible. You might not be able to write it down at the moment, but when you get home, it might be a good idea to write down some things and say, okay, here's what I learned, here's what I need to remember, here's what I need to do. That, that kind of skill of being someone who does a good job of following verbal instructions is going to get you far in life. And so be aware of weakness that you might have because of your homeschool background, that your mom's always there and you're always like, hey mom, what was I supposed to do? Uh, and now that's not the way it's going to be in the world and people aren't your mom and they're not going to be there to tell you. Uh, they expect you to know it after they tell you and not have to go back to them and say, what did you say? <clears throat> what was I supposed to do? So recognize that the real world is not the same as, as home or homeschool. Now, when we come to, to these last few weeks, we've just got two more weeks of class after today. The last class is on May 12th, and that's when the final exam is going to be. Now, I'm going to make the final exam somewhat easy on you because I feel bad about how we've been in a time crunch here at the end of the semester, getting your Bible studies prepared, and so I don't want to throw too much on you at the end of the semester when you've already got a lot of other things you're dealing with. So I'm going to make the final exam pretty straightforward and easy. As I talked about, you need to use the quizzes that we have for how should we then live to prepare for the final exam. If you haven't kept all of those quizzes, I did bring extra copies of those quizzes. They're blank. They don't have the answers on them. Over here on the pews. And so you can pick up any of those quizzes that you missed or are missing. And then you'll have to find the answers in the book or uh, phone a friend for some help and filling those out. But the questions will be exactly the same as they are in the quizzes. That's what I mean by making it easy for you. 
if I was going to make a difficult final exam, I'd come up with new questions and you'd have to go back and review all the chapters and, and all of that so that I could see that you actually knew all of the material. But I'm not going to do that to you. I'm instead going to give you the questions ahead of time. Now, they're not all going to be on there. I'm going to select from those questions. But if you know the questions that are on the quizzes, then you should do well on the final exam. And also, not just the how should we then live, but also the Bible interpretation, the hermeneutics textbook that we're going to be uh, having questions from the terminology. And so I've got the terminology page over there also, the definitions for the, the Bible interpretation terms. So make sure you take a look at that in preparation for the final. The vocabulary that we had on philosophy at the beginning of the year, there that was part of this, the quiz on chapter 2 in How Should We Then Live? And so I'm just going to use the same words, the same definitions. You don't have to study the whole sheet for the terms and definitions, but just the ones that are on the quiz from way back in chapter 2. So if you've still got your chapter 2 quiz, you know which vocabulary uh, items are going to be on the final exam also. Probably not all of them, but some of them. Alright, so then the other thing that we're doing these last couple weeks is preparing your Bible study. And then next week, we're going to divide up into small groups. And I'm planning about a 15-minute Bible study for each of you. That's pretty short, but you know it's a good place to start in preparing your own Bible studies. I usually teach for about 50 minutes. That's unusual. Most churches might have a 30 or 40 minute sermon. And I'm starting you guys off with a 15 minute teaching time, which is good for like a nursing home or assisted living type center. And so if you had a chance to teach an Awana group or a Sunday school group or a nursing home, and a good 15 minute message would, would be about right for that setting. So. You can plan and, and use this in that setting. So the work that you put into this Bible study, you can repurpose that. And when I did sermon preparation before with a group of guys years ago, uh, some of those guys actually got to you know, share that message in their church. And I thought that was pretty cool. So look for opportunities to be able to use the Bible study that you're preparing outside of this class. Hopefully God will give you some of those opportunities. Now, as you prepare your Bible study, I want you to know what is expected and, and how to go about that. I haven't had as much time as I wanted to teach you how to do the lexical and syntactical work. I just kind of threw you out there and said, figure it out from the examples I gave you. But uh, I want to give you a little bit more guidelines today on how to put together your Bible teaching. And so I've got a handout here that will be helpful along those lines. It's uh, two pages here that you'll want, so make sure you get one of each. One says judge guidelines, and then the other one is the actual evaluation form. So you, in your small groups, are going to be involved with grading one another. I won't be able to be in every small group. and We've got a lot of people that we need to get through teaching their Bible study, so we'll probably have groups of four. And then next week, if we have 15 minutes for each person, you can rotate around and everybody can teach their Bible study next week in groups of four. If you start to go really long, I might have to cut you off 
And for your Bible studies at the 20 minute mark, I'd say, well, sorry, you got to stop. We've got other people that, that need to do their Bible study today. So we'll have a timer in each group. Now you'll notice that the Bible teaching evaluation form is very similar to the speech form that I have been using to grade you on your first two speeches this year. And your first two speeches this year have basically been a, a good preparation for your Bible teaching. Now, for the Bible teaching, you don't necessarily have to be on the stage. We only have one stage here. And so we'll be in small groups and we'll have a, like a circle of chairs set up where you can do a, a small group Bible study. But still, you're going to want to use the things that you've learned from your public speaking on stage in your public speaking in the Bible study. So, if you take a look at the Bible teaching evaluation form, you see that organization is still an important part of the, the Bible study as well as it was for the speeches. So you've got your introduction, your body, and your conclusion. And I'm looking for the same things. I'm looking for a clear thesis statement at the beginning after your attention grabber where you should be able to tell people and people should be able to write down this is what the Bible study is about in one sentence. And you shouldn't have to leave them wondering and figuring it out as the Bible study is going along. What is the big idea? What's this all about? You know, at the very beginning, I want you to tell them this is the main point that God is teaching us through this Bible verse, through this Bible passage. And then when it comes to the thesis statement, uh, you're going to support that with three or more uh, main points, two to five, I'd say, two to five main points in your body. Now, you've only got 15 minutes, so you can't have a whole bunch of uh, main points. You're going to have to keep it concise. And the point here is that the people who are listening to you teach should be able to identify what your main points are. Now, when I teach on a Sunday morning, I've usually got my outline up on the screen, and so people can see what the main points are because they're up on the outline, but you're not going to have that in your small group Bible study, so you've got to clearly verbalize what your main points are in order to get these points for the Bible teaching uh, grade. Now, the other key thing here to, to note again is the transitions, that each main point should have a clear transition to the next. So what I mean, once again, by a clear transition is you state what your previous point was. You say, all right, we just looked at verses 1 and 2, and verses 1 and 2 showed us that Paul had a concern uh, for the Philippians for their joy, or whatever. I'm just making it up here. And then now we're moving on to the next couple verses where we're going to see this is further developed by Paul having a concern about Timothy and Timothy's visit to go visit the Philippians. And so you've talked about where you were, you talked about where you're going, and that's a, a transition between your main points. So that should be clear in the teaching that you give. And then notice also in the teaching in the body section, there's a part for illustrations. I think this is new. It wasn't in the public speaking forums that we had. That each main point should have at least one illustration. Now, when you're teaching through the Bible, you're spending your time explaining, well, this is what this word means, and this is why the author says this, and this is... Uh, the situation that he's referring back to. And so you're teaching what's in the text, but then you also want to illustrate the truth of your main point with something that is outside of the text as well. And these illustrations for your main points can come from your own personal experience. They can come from science or history. They can come from 
statistics, they can come from all different kinds of places, but the best place to get your illustrations from is the Bible itself. The Bible is the best way to illustrate any text of the Bible because it's a big book and it's got a lot of stories in it and those stories are designed to illustrate the truths that are in the Bible. And so most of my illustrations I try to have just come from the Bible itself. For example, if you're teaching on the subject of forgiveness and you've got a, a Bible passage in Colossians that talks about forgiving one another, then you might want to go back to talk about Peter and how Peter denied Christ three times and that Christ came and restored him. And even though Peter didn't feel like he was worthy to be a teacher and a leader in the church anymore, that Christ still appointed him to be a shepherd of his flock. And so you can show the, the restoration that comes along with forgiveness to help illustrate what forgiveness looks like in action, where you're not just in the text that commands forgiveness, but you're illustrating what forgiveness looks like. And the Bible provides illustrations that we can use for things like that. So illustrations from the Bible are the best because they're divinely inspired. Secondly, because a lot of people already know about the Bible, and so you're not bringing an illustration that nobody knows about. Like if you read a book, uh, a long novel, and you're trying to give an explanation about how this one character in the novel represents this truth, you got to spend time explaining all this novel, and you might not do a very good job of explaining it because it's too much to try to throw at people. And so you got to be careful that your illustrations don't miss the mark because you, you understand the context, but they don't understand the context. And so you've got to make sure that your illustration is not just communicating to you, but is communicating to the audience. Now, there should therefore be at least one illustration with each main point. Something outside of the text that you're teaching that illustrates the point of that text. And if it's from the Bible, all the better. Alright, so then in the conclusion, same thing. You've got to review your main points, you've got to review your thesis, and then of course you want to end with a challenge that is uh, bringing everything to a climax, pulling together all that you've taught into to one important point of challenge that is edifying. Edifying means it builds up people in their faith. Now, the second section is replacing the content section when it comes to the evaluation forms we used for the speeches, because when it comes to Bible teaching, the, the content is going to be judged based upon its accuracy. The most important thing in your Bible teaching is that you are accurate to what the Bible is teaching. The most important thing in your Bible teaching is not, do people think I'm clever? Uh, do people think I'm insightful? Do people think that I'm entertaining or uh, joyful or happy or any of those things? It's not about you when it comes to Bible teaching. It's, it's about the Bible. And it's about how accurately you are presenting the truth of what God has spoken. And so this is a more serious form of communication than the public speeches that we were doing earlier. And I want to impress that upon you. Take a look at the accuracy category here. You see, the first one is, did the speaker communicate a good understanding of the context of the passage? So, not only do you need to know the context of the passage, but you need to communicate that understanding of the context of the passage. So if you're teaching out of Genesis chapter 6, you got to make sure that you don't just know what's been happening in Genesis 4 and 5 and what comes after Genesis chapter 6, but that when the audience that you're teaching needs to know those things, you've explained the, the context. So that's, that'll be an important part of the body 
of your Bible teaching is explaining the context of the verses that you are teaching. So did the speaker communicate a good understanding of the context of the passage? Secondly, was the message theologically accurate? Now, you're going to be judging each other, and so I assume you're all pretty similar in your level and knowledge of theology. And so you might not get into the details of whether or not someone has spoken what you think is accurately concerning the, the theanthropic union of Christ or about the eternal subordination of the Son or something along those lines. So just when I'm talking about theological accuracy, I'm just saying, did they contradict anything that you know we all know is true in Scripture, uh, such as the deity of Christ or the sinfulness of man, something along those lines. If their opening illustration is about how good people are and how uh, you know everything that we do wrong is just a matter of misunderstanding, well, that's not theologically accurate. You want to be aware of things like that. <clears throat> All right. So then, uh, letter C. Did the main points demonstrably, that's a key word there, did they demonstrably arise from the text itself? So you want to bring your Bibles with you, of course, next week when you're doing your Bible studies and when you're grading other people's Bible studies. And you want to be able to see the main points in the text. And the person who is teaching should be able to show you in the text where the main point is coming from. If the main points are, you know, flowers are lovely, but there's nothing about flowers in the passage, you might say, uh, I didn't see that the main point was arising from the text. So it's the Bible teacher's responsibility to show you where the main points are in the text itself. And then letter D, were difficulties in the text explained through word studies, grammatical analysis, and or cross-references? So part of your observation assignment was to also have some questions. And as you ask questions, you might find that there were some difficulties, that different Christians read this passage differently. That's largely what a difficulty is, is that people understand it differently, people read it differently, people interpret it differently. And so, if you've got a passage, and there probably is a, a, some kind of difficulty in, in most every passage, if you've got a passage where there's disagreement among Christians as to what it means, then you want to be able to explain that through uh, looking at the words, looking at the grammar, that's your lexical and syntactical work, and cross-references, because the, the Bible is a great guide for interpreting the Bible. And so, if there's one passage that is difficult to understand, like the passage where Paul talks about those who are baptized for the dead, you say, well, what does baptized for the dead mean? Well, you've got to have to show some, some cross-references to make sure that you don't end up with a, a bad understanding, a wrong understanding, a misunderstanding of that passage. So cross-references are good for dealing with difficulties. And you want to use, be using your cross-reference tools like I taught you from your study Bibles and your, your reference Bibles and also commentaries have a lot of useful cross-references in them as well. And then finally, in the accuracy category, were the applications based upon in-depth and clear interpretations of the text? And what we're looking for here is that the person has spent time explaining what the Bible passage means before they go on and say what it means to you or what it means to us. That we need to know what it meant in its context, in its original context, before we jump to what does it mean today. So if they get into the main point, and the, the, their main point is, we need to preach the gospel more. 
uh, yet they haven't spent any time talking about how the text uh, shows that, but they just jump straight to this application point, that's bad preaching. Now it's true, we need to preach the gospel, but when we're teaching the Bible, we're not just you know, coming up with what we feel like saying, what we think the church needs to do a better job of, but instead we're showing this is what the Bible says, and this is how what the Bible says is relevant to us today. So the applications have to be grounded in an in-depth and clear interpretation of the text. You do interpretation before application, not only in your own study, but also in your presentation and your teaching of God's Word. Then finally, on the back side, you've got the communication section, which is almost exactly the same as what we had before with the speeches. We're still looking for the vitality and passion. We're still looking for the appropriate verbal communication with clear pronunciation and good grammar. And then we're still looking for a physical communication. Even if you're sitting down in a small group, you can still use your hands. You can still make eye contact. So those are the things that you'll be judging afterwards. While the teaching is going on, just focus on the organization. So while you're listening to the person teach, uh, just be writing down, okay, that yes, there was an illustration for that main point. Yes, uh, he did have a, a thesis statement that I was able to, to catch. Yes, he did review his main points because you're gonna make, make sure that you catch those things, that you're listening carefully so that you don't go back and say, well, was there an illustration for the second point? So during the sermon, you're gonna be focusing on the organization part. And then afterwards, you can kind of reflect on, well, was it accurate? Or if, you know, you hear something during the sermon and you're like, well, I don't know about that, you might write it down and think about it afterwards. So we'll give you some time in between Bible studies to be filling in the accuracy part and the communication part. Now, one of the things that I find helpful when I'm grading a speech is to put a plus or a minus next to certain things on the communication. So like if they have appropriate volume level, I put a plus there. But if I can't hear them, I put a minus there. So it reminds me later that uh, you know, I noticed that during the sermon or the speech. And then the eye contact, you know, same thing. Like if you notice good eye contact, you put a plus there. If you notice poor eye contact, you put a minus. So when you come back and grade it later, you've already kind of uh, made a mental note and a, a physical note about that on your paper. Alright, so then take a look at the judge guidelines, which is, uh, I'm just going to make sure I covered everything on here. I think as we walk through the evaluation form, I probably covered a lot of this. So we're going to want to time the introduction, and we don't want the introduction to be too long. So whoever's the timer needs to write down when the person transitions from their introduction to their first main point. And if the introduction uh, is more than three minutes, then we're going to knock off some points for each minute longer than that. And the timer can communicate that to those who are grading after the, the Bible teaching is done. Sometimes introductions can get long, so you have to be careful that your intro doesn't crowd out the time that you have to actually teach the Bible. Now, it says there, you know, write down their thesis, that's important, and how to, and you can read this at home, uh, how many points to take off if the thesis isn't stated clearly, and then also, um, some of the other things I mentioned there you can read and be reminded of. I gave you this judge guidelines, so you can take it home, not only so you can prepare to be a judge of this Bible teaching next week, but also so that you know how you're going to be judged, and you can prepare your Bible study in light of these things, and hopefully 
do an excellent job. So then uh, more there just on the body, I think I've already covered in the conclusion. Um, I talked about the accuracy and those things. Notice uh, in the accuracy section on, on letter D, on difficulties in the text, it says don't grade based on whether or not the teacher took the position you prefer, but on how well they supported their position, even if you don't agree with it. So you're not saying, well, I didn't agree, so it's not accurate. Maybe you're wrong. Then instead, just say, well, how well did they support the position that they were presenting? That's a better way of evaluating the, the Bible teacher. Yeah. I apologize if you already said this, but are the other three the judges that you're taking the average of that? Yes. Okay. And I'm going to try to have an adult in each group too, okay. so if uh, you yeah. can be here next week, you can be one of my judges also. Okay. Um, Alright, so read that through if you have any questions, talk with me about it. But that should give you a pretty good idea of what we're looking for in your Bible teaching next week. Now, let me talk a little bit more about preparing your Bible lesson. And I went through some of my old notes um, when I've taught this before, and I was reminded that Bible teaching basically has four steps in preparation. One, the first step is you gather your materials. Gathering your material is what we've been doing the last several weeks. You've been uh, doing observation paper. You've been asking questions about your text. You've been reading it in multiple translations. You've been looking up cross-references. You've been doing word studies, and you've been looking at the grammar and writing your lexical and syntactical. And so that's the gathering of the material. It's observation and study, and you're writing all that stuff down. That's step one in sermon preparation. Step two is you've got to organize that material, and you do that with an outline. And so you sit down with all of your, your material, and you start to look at it, and you start to look for what are the main points? What are the, the big ideas that are here that I've been thinking about, and reading about, and studying about? And you start to, to put it into an outline. Normally, you, your outline will probably follow the outline of the passage itself. Because the passage itself has a flow and a structure and, and main points. And so you can look at the first part of it. If it's a narrative section, it might be longer. If it's a didactic section, it might be a shorter section. And you might have, in a didactic section, your main point might just be one verse or half a verse or part of a verse. Whereas in a narrative section, your main, first main point might be a whole chapter and sometimes. And so... How it breaks down is going to depend upon what type of text it is that you're dealing with. But your preaching outline doesn't have to be the same thing as your outline of the text. And this is one thing I haven't had you hand in, but it's a great thing to do, and if we had more time we would have done it, is after you've done the work that you've done, you would prepare an outline of the passage itself. This is not an outline of the teaching that you plan on doing. It's just an outline of the passage, looking at the structure of the Bible passage. And you're trying to be as accurate and close so that if the author came to you and, and looked at your outline, he'd be like, yep, that's, that's what I was doing. That's, that was my thought process. Those were my main points. That's, what I, that's why I wrote what I wrote. And now a, a teaching outline can be different from the exegetical outline. 
exegetical outline is just saying, well, this is what the original author's outline would be if you put his passage into outline form. But the teaching outline can be different because you're just taking a section of the author's work. You're not taking the whole work. You're not preaching the whole book of Genesis or the whole book of Colossians. You're just preaching a few verses out of Colossians. And so that the way that you teach it might be different than the way that he put it together. And this I find especially to be true in my teaching when I'm in like the Gospels or narrative section of Scripture. Sometimes I have to rearrange things for the sermon because preaching this passage is different than writing a book about it. It's a different format. And so you might have to rearrange things to put them in more of a, a preaching outline rather than the narrative outline that the author used to write the whole book. And when you make the outline of the passage, that can help you then to create your preaching outline. You don't have to differ from the outline of the passage. Sometimes it's helpful. But if you just want to follow the, the exegetical outline, that's fine. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. In fact, very often it's very helpful. Now, once you've put, you know, point one, point two, point three, point four, whatever, on your outline, then you're filling in, and this is actually how my outlines actually come about, is you start to organize material according to what connects and what relates. And so you start ending up with these blocks of material. It's like, okay, well, I've got this word study in this verse, and I've got these cross-references that explain this thought. And so you've got this, this block of material, and then you've got your next block of material, and that starts to form your outline. And that can change. You know, you can start with one outline and you can say, well, no, really, I want to, I want to combine these two points or something along those lines. And so the more work you put into it, the more time you just spend creating your teaching outline, the better it's going to come together. And you're going to want to be choosy about what you put in and what you take out. Normally, I do, you know, 20, 25 hours worth of research on each Bible passage that I'm going to teach. And so I'm going to end up with a lot more material than I can actually use in a 50-minute sermon. And so I have to be careful. I have to be choosy. I have to say, well, okay, this isn't uh, something I'm going to include. This is something I'm going to include. And you don't include things based upon what's going to be most entertaining or what's going to be most fun or what you like the most. But you include things or not include things for whatever is going to communicate best what God, the author of the text, originally communicated and is communicating through that passage today. And that's, that's important that your heart is in the right place as you're preparing to deal with God's word. I want to read you a scripture verse on that. If you got your Bibles with you, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The most important thing... It's not really on the evaluation form, but hopefully it comes through in the way that you are careful with the text and are accurate in your presentation. The most important thing is, is your heart before God. That when God is sending his message through a teacher, not everybody's a teacher, but it's good for everybody to get an opportunity to teach and discover whether or not that is something that God has called you to do. It's important that the, the teacher through whom God's word is coming to other people be a person that is in accordance with the message, that you've got a life that is holy, that you're, you're learning how to love and not be a self-centered, prideful person, and that you've got that humility and concern for others, but most of all, that 
your concern is for God and for his glory, that if your heart and your character is right, then a lot of the other things, you know, that you're going to mess up on and you're going to, you know, make mistakes and learn from those mistakes, that's all very forgivable. However, to misuse, to mishandle God's word because your heart isn't right in the matter, that's something that God is going to judge more harshly than, well, you forgot to have an illustration with point number two, right? So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It, Paul writing here, he says, this is how one should regard us, speaking of his apostolic circle, his, himself and his helpers, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So are you a servant of Christ? Is that your identity? That I am in this world as someone who wants to serve Christ. That's pretty important if you're going to be a Bible teacher. Probably the most important thing. And then secondly, he says, you regard us as a steward of the mysteries of God. So a steward is somebody who doesn't own something, but who has a responsibility to take care of it for someone else. In the you know, former times, you had large households with rich, rich people, and they would have different servants living in the house. And one of the servants, or like the top of the servants, was the steward. He was the one who was in charge of all the other servants, making sure that the cook was doing his thing and that the gardener was doing his thing and the maids were doing their thing and that everything was operating the way it's supposed to be operating. He was the, the chief steward uh, who was in charge of the household. And so that's what Paul says he's like in the church, that he's a steward. He doesn't own anything. It all belongs to his Lord, but that he wants to do a good job of taking care of the responsibility that God has given him in God's household. And the stewardship that is highlighted here is the stewardship of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God is the truth of God that in former times was not revealed, but now has been revealed in the new covenant in this church time. And so Paul is a steward of these mysteries, and he's going to have to give an account to his Lord as to how well he passed on these mysteries that God had given to him to share with others. And so that's the way it is to be a teacher. You're a steward of the mysteries of God. And notice verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's the key right there. That you be found faithful. Another passage that I think is important to consider as you put together your Bible study and prepare to, to teach, even in just a small group, is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Now remember... Guys, gals, he who is faithful in the small thing will also be faithful in the great thing. And so if you can be faithful in teaching you know, two or three other people here on next Friday, then you can be faithful in, in teaching you know, 10,000 people at a huge rally. It's, it's not the, the size of the ministry that God has given to you, but it's your faithfulness in that by which God judges you. And if, if you're faithful with a little, God won't trust you with much. And I'm not saying if you do a great job in your Bible study here next week that you're going to you know, someday be a famous preacher or you know, sell thousands of books or something like that. But what I'm saying is, is that uh, in the kingdom of God, that you will be entrusted with responsibilities if you've been found faithful in the little thing that God gives you to do here. Don't seek great things for yourself now. Just seek faithfulness. And then in the coming kingdom of God, you will be exalted. 
And it's not wrong to, to want to be exalted in God's kingdom, because that's how we glorify God. Now, 1 Peter chapter 4, then, was the other verse here I think is very important, verses 10 and 11. And it says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So this is God's plan for his family, for his church. The pillar and support of the truth is that each individual who is a Christian, who's born again, that he gives you a gift. And Peter here helpfully categorizes the gift in just two categories. Those who speak and those who serve. You might have a speaking gift. You might have a serving gift. You've got one of the two. And he says there that we're supposed to use it to serve one another. That's, that's why we're here. We're, we're here to serve one another. That's part of what Paul was saying earlier and when he was talking back in 1 Corinthians about how you should see us as servants of Christ. Well, Christ isn't here, and so in order to serve Christ, we serve one another, his, his brothers and sisters, God's children. So we, we have to serve one another, either through speaking or service. And it says then in verse 11... Oh, again, you see how that emphasis on stewardship before we get to verse 11, back in verse 10, as good stewards of God's varied grace. So whether you are gifted as a speaker or a servant, you need to be a good steward of the gift that God has given you to do this assigned role that God has given to you in serving the saints. And so he then divides it into those two categories in verse 11. Notice, whoever speaks... As one who speaks oracles of God. An oracle in the ancient world was a message from the gods. Now, if you're a pagan, you know, you got multiple gods, and the gods would communicate to people through through their oracles, their prophets. And you know, Baal had prophets just like Yahweh had prophets back in the Old Testament. And so an oracle was a, a message from God, it was a divine message. And that's what we're supposed to speak. We're supposed to speak the oracles of God, a, a divine message. I don't just get up in the pulpit and, and preach on whatever social topic I feel like is important to sp speak on. But instead, I, I get into the pulpit and I, I speak the oracles of God. Now, this is God's word, God's message. And so we must be found faithful as stewards and we must speak the oracles of God. So that's very important to, to get that, that mindset so that when we teach we can be found faithful in the eyes of God. Now, what you're trying to do in your Bible teaching is what we call expository teaching. You're trying to exposit, that is to lay out, to unfold, what is the meaning of God's Word. You're not trying to add to it. You're not trying to take away from it. Instead, you're just trying to, as clearly and as uh, faithfully as possible, communicate what the text is saying, and it does, it, 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 is, it is speaking very powerfully. And so, that's why we've been going through our hermeneutics, that's why we've been going through our Bible study book, our Bible interpretation book, and what you want to do then, this week, is you want to look at your passage, and you want to review each one of these 30 points that we've covered in study to show yourself approved, Bible interpretation, and see, how does it relate to my passage? Now, a lot of these will not relate to your passage, okay? So, if your passage is not prophetic, then you can cut out a lot of this stuff here uh, about 
Israel and the church and the rapture and the return and, and those types of things. Um, but there'll be a number of these that will apply to your passage. And so it's great to take what you've learned and apply it specifically to what you've been studying, what you've been reading, what you've been immersing yourself in, and be checking and see, do I have one interpretation with, with many applications? Applications can be in your illustrations and also at your conclusion. But you've got to have the, the one interpretation. What does the passage mean in its context? And then you come down and you've got to check yourself and say, well, am I, am I riding a hobby horse? Or am I picking out a pet peeve that's not really in my passage? I listened to a preacher recently, and he was talking about how one of his elders was faithful, and he came to him and said, Pastor, I've noticed that for the last four weeks you've been talking about you know, this subject, but it's not in the text. And you just find a way to always make the text connect with this subject. And it's like, yeah, it's been a lot on my mind lately. And so I just keep going back to that subject in my teaching, but it's not coming from the text. And so he had to accept that rebuke and say, I, I got to get off my hobby horse and, you know, just teach what God's word says. And so that's a good reminder. You know, you can connect any thought to any other thought. You could say, well, this passage is about God, and God cares about the poor, and so I want to preach a sermon about the poor, and you just get totally away from the passage just because you made this logical connection between the text and God and the poor. And, and that's not being a Bible teacher. Uh, that's, that's being a sermonizer. And there's a place and, and a time for you to be able to, to give a speech on God's care for the poor or something like that. But that's not what we're doing this week. That's not what we're doing in preparing our Bible studies, we're, we're trying to just communicate what is our text, okay? And this will help you. You go through and you just think, you know, for a couple minutes, uh, I need to be careful about spiritualization. And you go back and review that and you apply it to your text. I need to make sure that I am uh, not getting my doctrine from an illustration uh, that is here. I'm not pushing the illustration beyond what it was intended to mean in the text. And, reading something into it that's not there. So, all of those things. Now, let's go ahead then and look at the final chapter that we had in our Bible interpretation book. And he packed quite a few principles into this last chapter, starting there with principle number 24 and all the way down to principle number 30. So, we've got boom, boom, boom. Uh, seven principles packed into this last chapter. So we're going to cover them somewhat quickly here. Now, principle number 24, you see, is to highlight the theme of salvation. Now, here's one where I was reading and I was like, well, yeah, but. And so I want to give you some of the yeah, but uh, when I was thinking about this. And you can think through it and decide what you think. I want to be careful not to read into a passage a hobby horse. And while personal salvation is a very important teaching in the, in the scriptures, I want to be careful not to read it into passages where that's not really the point of the passage. Now, everybody comes to the Bible with kind of their idea of what is the big idea, what the Bible's really all about. And different Christians have somewhat different ideas as to what the Bible really is all about. Some people say, well, that if you look at the Bible objectively, you can really trace God's kingdom. That it starts there early on with Israel and continues through the prophets and Jesus talks about it and the apostles talk about it. And the book of Revelation ends with God's kingdom. And so I think the big idea of the Bible is, is God's kingdom. 
as I, I just see it all the way through. Another person like our author might say, well, no, the, the big idea of the Bible is, is salvation. That God is, is working through history to overcome sin and death and provide eternal salvation for his people. And, and so there's, there's different perspectives. Some uh, people might say, no, you know, personal salvation is great, but it's really just a part of a bigger idea, a bigger theme of, of God's glory. And that all things are created for God's glory. And you come in, you read in, in Romans and Ephesians that our salvation is all for the glory of God. And so I think that's the theme that, that I want to be reading and looking for in every text of the Bible. And so you have to be careful. And recently in, in days, some people said, well, Christ is, is what the Bible is all about. And so when I go back and, and read the Old Testament, I'm going to look for Christ in every verse. And, and of course, Christ is all over the Old Testament. I'm not denying that. But you have to be careful. You don't read what you want to be into certain texts just because you think that's the big idea of the Bible. That's getting into the hobby horse. Uh, and so just be aware that different Christians have different ideas of, of what is the biggest, the most important idea in Scripture. And you want to just allow the text that you're teaching to speak for itself. You don't want to take away anything that is there. If the passage does relate to God's kingdom or God's glory or personal salvation, great, you can bring that out. But don't insert it if it's not there. And it can be difficult to know. And sometimes we see things that aren't there and we think they are. So I just wanted to give a word of caution about principle number 24, okay? And then principle 25 is a good one. Realize that not all truth has been revealed. Just about every question and answer that I've, I've been a part of has the, the same questions. And basically the questions are, well, God's word hasn't clearly revealed this, so would you tell us uh, you know, what God should have said about this? Of course, they don't put the question that way, but that's so often is that we want to know what the Bible doesn't say, and we expect our Bible teachers to be able to say it. And, you know, the best thing for me as a Bible teacher is to learn to say, I don't know, or we don't know, and say, well, there's people that speculate that it's this, or people speculate that it's that, but that this isn't actually revealed, and we're going to have to wait to find out the answer to some of these questions. Um, so... Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Now, if you don't know, there's two possibilities. One, it hasn't been revealed, and so you can't know. And two, it has been revealed, but you just haven't figured it out yet. And knowing the difference between those can be tricky. But if you just say, I don't know, I'll do my best to figure it out and get back to you. That is a great way to answer a question. Don't pretend to know something that you don't know. And don't speculate. Our, our goal in teaching the Bible is not to give speculation, but to unfold revelation. You want to unfold the revelation, don't give speculation. I'm not particularly interested in your speculation. Um, for one, you're young and you haven't done a lot of Bible teaching, and so your speculation is not going to be worth as much as somebody who, who knows more. But secondly, I'm not that much interested in speculation anyway, because I've heard all the speculation, and I recognize it's just speculation, and we really don't know. Um, you know, one of the questions that always comes up is, what happens to babies uh, that die before they're old enough to believe in Christ? It's like, well, I don't know. And people don't like that answer. They want to hear the answer of, well, of course, God saves them, and they go to heaven because they haven't reached the age of accountability, and, and they can give Bible verses that seem to indicate that that's true. 
if you really look at it objectively, those Bible verses are not designed to answer that question, and they're kind of wanting those Bible verses to teach something that they're really not teaching. And so in the end, I think the best answer is to say, well, we don't know, but whatever God does is right. I know that. And so don't be afraid to say, I don't know, and don't mistake your speculation with God's revelation. It's better to be faithful, like 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says. Now, that's recognizing that not all truth has been revealed. The next principle, 26, is related to principle number 25, and that, again, is the limits of our knowledge. And our knowledge in principle 26 isn't limited because it hasn't been revealed, but it's limited just because we don't have the capacity to fully understand what has been revealed. So there's things that God has revealed that go beyond our capacity to fully understand. And that shouldn't surprise us. That we are human, God is not. We are finite, God is infinite. And for us to be able to understand everything fully that God had revealed, well then, we would probably have to be gods ourselves. We're created in the image of God, and we can understand a lot, but we can't understand everything. And I liked his illustration about it. It's like trying to explain calculus to a cat. Cats are smart, they can do a lot, they can, they can understand a lot, but no cat has ever understood and no cat ever will understand the principles of calculus. It's just beyond their ability. And that's the way certain things are in the scriptures. And then again, we have to just be willing to say that. Uh, that I don't fully understand it, but I know it's true because God's word says it, and you leave it at that. This has to do with the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. He did a good job of bringing those up in the passage. How can God be three persons who are distinct and relate to one another as persons do and yet be one God? Because we are distinct persons and, and yet we're not one humanity in the same sense that he is one God. And so the, the three in oneness of God is, is kind of a a mental contradiction in our minds. We don't see how it works. There's nothing else like it to compare it to, although people have tried, they usually just end up messing up the doctrine when they try to force uh, the Trinity to be like something else, because the Trinity is not really like anything else. And that shouldn't surprise us either, because God is not like anything else in this sense. And so when you get into certain things about the Trinity, you know, eternal subordination or functional subordination, and once again, I think Christians should be gracious and be saying, well, this is how I understand it, but it could be the other way, and not be anathematizing one another for, for how they try to understand what is beyond our understanding. Um, also, this comes in with the doctrine of predestination and free will, as it's called, uh, often, what's often called is the, the arguments between the Calvinists and the Armenians. And so, when it comes to God's predestination and human responsibility or the freedom of choice. That's one of those things where you can examine and see what the Bible says, and you can be honest with what the Bible says, but you can't quite work it out. It's like, well, I know that God is sovereign. I know that people are responsible for their moral choices, and yet God predestines their moral choices. And how that works out, I don't know. Uh, that's okay. It's okay to not understand how that works out because you're just a person. And you don't understand people. And it's like, we think we should be able to understand ourselves, but we still don't know how the human brain works. 
And we, we, we live in time, but we don't know what time is and why time is unidirectional. And there's, there's so much that is so common and so much a part of our experience, and yet we have no idea. We have real no understanding of it at its core and its essence. And so recognize that the finite cannot fully understand the infinite. Now, if you're interested in that subject of predestination and the human will, then I think one of the best short books on that that is readable and understandable is by J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer has a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's our responsibility to evangelize, but God is the one who is sovereign over who becomes a believer. And just working all that out in our thinking, well, no one has done it, and I don't think anyone will do it, but J.I. Packer does a good job of explaining why it's beyond our understanding. So, you can understand that it's beyond your understanding. That's, that's the best we can do. Now, principle 27, then, being aware of, of pride and prejudice, thinking, well, everyone else is wrong, and I'm the one who's got it all figured out, and, you know, uh, R.C. Sproul may not understand where evil comes from, but I know where evil comes from. You know, you've got to beware of that kind of pride, that you think that you are the man, and that wisdom is going to die with you. I like that quote from the book of Job. Job's counselors are there talking to Job, and they're, they're you know, stating things rather dogmatically. And he says, surely you are the men, and wisdom is going to die with you, uh, you know, ironically. So you want to avoid that kind of pride and, and prejudice. Now, prejudice is another word for bias. And you have to know, you have to be aware of your own bias in order to resist it. So when you're studying a Bible passage, you should say, well, what is my bias? Why do I like this theology, or this position, or this interpretation. Well, because, you know, it's what I've been taught. It's what I'm comfortable with. It's, it's what my group believes, and I want to fit in with my group. you got to know your bias so that you can resist your bias. And if you're not honest with yourself about your bias, then you're going to think that you're not biased, and you won't be able to evaluate the evidence fairly in any meaningful way. So you've got to beware. You've got to be aware that I am proud, and that I am prejudiced, and that I have to fight against my pride and my prejudice if I'm going to hope to make progress in knowing the truth, which is really the goal. We want to be knowing the truth and sharing the truth with others as stewards of the mysteries of God. Your pride and prejudice do not help you to be a good steward of the mysteries of God. He brought out some good things here about pleasant interpretations, how you know we have a prejudice against eternal conscious torment. I have a prejudice against eternal conscious torment. I kind of wish that the Bible didn't teach that. That's a very uncomfortable doctrine. And yet, I can't help but say that that's what the Bible teaches. And so, that's just one example. But there's many other examples of, of wanting the scriptures to say things that please us and please others. This is man-pleasing. Rather than just being honest with the text. And... Then he brought out our traditions and the mode of baptism, I thought was a good example about how uh, people just tend to follow their traditions on baptism instead of really being open to what does this scripture say. And then also you have to be careful about not just following your favorite preacher, the one you like to listen to the most, the one that you know, thinks the most like you and connects with, with you. Don't just accept all of his positions because you like him. But instead, recognize he's just one teacher, he's a good teacher, but God gives lots of teachers to the church, and, and not one person has a corner on the truth. Then principle 28, we already talked some about the hobby horses and the pet peeves. 
A hobby horse is something you'd like to talk about. A pet peeve is something you like to talk you like to talk against. And it's like, oh, this bothers me so much. I got to speak against this again. And so you have to be aware as a Bible teacher that it's not about your pet peeves. It's about what does the Bible say. And so be a good steward and don't take the pulpit away from God. It's God's pulpit, not yours. And then uh, principle 29, respect the insight of other Christians. And once again, as I was reading through this, I was like, yeah, but... And so I want to share a little bit of the yeah, but with you on principle 29 as well. Respect the insight of other Christians. Of course, yeah, I'm not saying we shouldn't respect the insight of other Christians. We should read the commentaries, and not just the modern commentaries, but also read the older commentaries, and uh, avoid recency bias, which is uh, what he says here in verse 30. I mean, not verse 30. Uh, principle number 30, consider the historical interpretations of the text. You being a 21st century Christian, you're going to think like a 21st century Christian. You're going to have a recency bias. You're going to think, well, whatever you know, we think now is definitely right. And so you have to be careful with that. And not all things that are called progress are progress. And there's certain things that are part of our culture and, and our viewpoints that are not good. And so avoid the recency bias and read commentaries and read the older commentaries. But then he also, in Principle 29, talked about how personal experience that other people have can really help them to have insight into the scriptures and that other cultures also can have insight into scriptures that are you know blind spots for us and that's true it's true that some people have personal experience that will help them in interpreting and applying scripture and some cultures will be able to see certain things that other cultures won't be able to see in the text however that can be pushed too far and it does get pushed too far in our time of cultural relativism, and what we've seen is a tendency for people to adopt what is, I think, a good term, uh, but a bad viewpoint as perspectivalism. And perspectivalism means that you know everyone's got their own perspective, and that their perspective needs to be respected, whether or not it's true, because there really is no such thing as truth. And so we just have to respect everyone's perspective and recognize that the way perspectivalism goes wrong is that it's always emphasizing the minority's perspective and de-emphasizing the majority's perspective and saying, well, you know, this culture has been dominant and so we don't want to listen to them anymore, but instead we want to listen to this culture that has been, you know, uh, oppressed and this kind of a Marxist type of approach to elevating the experience and the cultures of the oppressed as opposed to the oppressor according to Marxist definitions of oppressed and oppressor. Now, I want to avoid that. And so, you know, if somebody says, well, you can't really preach about homosexuality unless you've come out of it and experienced, you know, the life change that Christ works in you. I say, no, I can preach what the Bible says about homosexuality without ever having lived a homosexual lifestyle because that's my job is to preach the Bible. And I don't have to preach my experience. Um, even parenting. You know, I can preach what the Bible says about parenting even if I never had kids. You know, the Apostle Paul never had kids. He wasn't married. And he's the one who wrote how husbands are supposed to love their wives and wives are supposed to submit to their husbands and how parents are supposed to raise their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. You know, it wasn't his experience that gave him the ability to talk about these things. It was God's word. They gave him the experience, to, uh, the, the authority to talk about these things. And so 
uh, uh, be careful with the uh, overemphasis of experience and culture uh, to the extent that it takes away from the authority of God's word in and of itself. Okay, that's, that's what I was thinking about when he talked about principle 29 in the chapter. All right, so we've got about 15 minutes left, and what I want you to do with that time is I want you to get into small groups and go over your answers to chapter 12 exam and study to show yourself approved. So go ahead and get your answers out, get your book out, or your study guide if it's separate. And each group appoint a, a leader and just start talking through the answers for those. Go. All right, in the final minutes, if I could just uh, rehearse a couple of things here. Rehearse, rehash, reiterate, re-something. Sorry uh, if you didn't get all the way through, but it's good to hear you talking about it. This week, you're getting your Bible study ready because next Friday you'll be giving your Bible study in class. 12 to 15 minutes is the, the time frame that we're looking for. If you go a little bit over, that's all right. But practice it so you get some idea of how long it takes to, to do the Bible study. It's not the same as your speech. And you're allowed to use whatever notes you want. You don't have to use note cards for this. If you want to bring your preaching outline and preach from an outline. If you want to write out your whole sermon and just read it, you can do that too. Some, some teachers do that. I don't recommend it, but if that works for you, then whatever works for you. Now, what I do is I, I teach from an outline. I, rec I recommend bringing your, your teaching outline, and on your outline, you'll have your cross-references, you'll have some keynotes. I end up highlighting or underlining things on my outline. At the last minute, I'll cross things out, like, oh, I won't have time for this, or this isn't helpful. But the more you can do that ahead of time, rather than last minute, the better. And this is, for some of you, going to be your first time doing a Bible study. And so try to get off on the right foot, but don't feel too bad if you stumble. And the most important thing is, like you said, to have your heart in the right place. So spend some time this week asking for that wisdom from God to, to really honor His Word and be a servant of Him. Not only with this Bible teaching, but with everything that you do in your life. And then also I wanted to mention about the lexical and syntactical work. If you handed it in today, great. If you didn't hand it in, you can email me a copy of it. That would be fine. Or you can hand it in late next week. If you're still doing work on your lexical and syntactical up until you know the time that you're giving your, your Bible lesson, okay. Uh, better late than never. And so I'd rather you do the work than not do it. And so I do accept late work. Any questions about the Bible study next week or the lexical syntactical? Yeah. Uh, is it is all of the Bible studies going to be next week? We're going to get as many as we can. Uh, I think we'll be able to get them all in next week. If not, we'll do some on the twelfth. Okay. And the final exam will be on the twelfth. There's uh, copies of the quizzes over here. Uh, if you lost those from the first half of the semester, so pick those up if you need them. And there's talk of maybe getting a study group together before the final, so you guys can figure out how you want to go about all that. Have a good week. So, uh,
I am not gonna be here the last day. Oh yes, okay. You're not the only one. So I can get 